residential reactor to prevent lighting specialist to arc residential to Welcome to Residential Tech Talks. I'm Jeremy Glowacki, Executive Editor of Residential Tech Today. In this episode, I'm joined by Dennis Erskine, founder of Erskine Group, a Colorado-based private cinema design build firm. Dennis helped shape several significant aspects of the residential technology integration industry and Cedia as a global organization. He recently joined the esteemed ranks as a Cedia fellow, becoming only the 30th industry member to be selected by the Cedia board of directors for this honor. Dennis, congratulations and thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. I, I enjoy uh, talking to you and I'm still in a state of shock over the award. Well, I, I definitely want to talk about that. I too was shocked back in 2012 when I was given a call and told that I was getting it. And, uh, you know, it was really the first time that I'd gotten any kind of industry recognition. Uh, I don't really strive for personal attention. <laughs> I'm pretty, pretty introverted and, um, you know, shy about stuff like that. But I, I can't lie, when I got it, um, it was a really great feeling to just have, you know, realize that the board had taken note of my work, I guess. So um, I, <laughs> as it turns out, those of you that are looking at video, you can look at the back there and I have Forky um, hanging off of my fellow award just to keep me humble because Forky thinks he's trash. And so not to think that, <laughs> that I uh, am so special, but I do, I do really hold that in high esteem. And I just wondered, um, you know, besides being shocked, how do you feel about getting that, that honor? Well, what has come as a surprise is some of the messages and emails I've received from other people in the industry about things I contributed to the industry that I had no clue. <laughs> that, okay. It's like, okay. Um, but when I got the call from the chairman, I'm thinking, I'm either being called into the principal's office or I'm being given homework. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you usually have a lot, you, you volunteer for so much. I'm sure there's always a call like that where you're getting more to do. Yeah, it's sort of like, volunteering in the military everybody stands back and you're left in the front of the line going how did this happen i learned i learned a new term my wife said voluntold <laughs> to <Yeah>. do something <laughs> right exactly yeah well well so um i i definitely want to talk about your background and career um during our our chat today but i i wanted to know how your work with cedia began um what was your first volunteer um, role or assignment with Cedia? Oh, gosh, that was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> I, I think I did some um, education, teaching classes, proctoring the designer exam and a few things like that. Um, the first really intense um, effort I was involved with was to develop the home theater design specialist examination, which was um, eventually it didn't go anywhere, largely because the exam was a two-day uh, peer-reviewed exam. And so it would have been expensive to take and finding 
um, a panel of peers who could spend two days um, challenging your assertions, mm. uh, much like a PhD, but that was the intent was to have a PhD level course. Okay. Um, and that's actually uh, when we're through with the two uh, accredited certifications that we're working on now, mm -hmm. uh, that one's going to come back out of the box. And so we'll do that in networking. Um, there's a lot of just bad information out there about the proper way to put together a home theater versus a home cinema. Um, and I think the way I got started in this is when I first started in the business. In fact, the way it started was I had just sold my previous business to um, a large multinational company. And I and my partner were living in Atlanta with money in our pocket, wondering what to do next. And the very first CEDIA was being held that, that week. Wow. Okay. So we went there and said, aha, we can do this. Mm. Um, and so we did the whole home thing. And over time, we were requested to do some theaters. Mm -hmm. And the thing that drive me nuts was, why are we doing this? All it is is a big TV. There's no... The experience doesn't replicate at all what you would expect to get in a first-class theater. Okay. And so that's when I started saying, this has got to change. Okay. Well, I, I want to take, take steps through your career, um, but you touched on the certification committee, uh, the efforts that you're doing and you're the chairman of the CDS certification commission, which helped um, create the cabling and infrastructure technician certification and the integrated system technician certification and improvements to CDS certification in general. Can you explain how important it is that all these efforts that you've been putting into this? Because I know there's been a bit of a back and forth as far as creating some sort of a barrier to entry, but without being exclusionary for the CDA membership. But you do need a standard. You need to have CDA mean something and have that certification. So what 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 was how how much effort did you have to put in that to make this something that means something to people? Well it's it's a lot of work, but where CD is going in their strategic plan, um, we've had certification for years and oftentimes the feedback was why nobody knows about it and doesn't what does it mean to a client and so the purpose of the commission it's really a quasi separate organization from cd itself and it has to be to comply with ansi and iso rules in other words there has to be a brick wall between us and education we can't tell them what's on the test we can tell them what subjects matters are being covered mm. and the value of having ANSI and ISO accreditation for our certifications is that accreditation is like a manufacturer saying we're ISO 9001. Um, so it has meaning to the markets that we wish to, the trades we wish to be peer with. It's architects, home builders, um, realtors, and so forth that these certifications have international weight and recognition. 
They're not just some organization saying we're going to come up with a certification so you guys can go around and have put badges on your sleeve or something of that nature. This is serious stuff. Mm -hmm. And the process by which we determine what certifications are needed to developing the exam, defining the job that we're trying to exam is all subject to some very stringent rules and auditing by ANSI. And um, that also feeds in in parallel to the fact that CD is now an ANSI standards development organization. Mm. So we filled that strategic goal of being the organization that sets the standards for our industry. Right. We're not become, beholding to some third party out there um, that is aligned with our industry. It's not saying we ignore them, but it's saying our standards are our standards. They are ANSI, ISO accredited, and we're here, we're serious, and we intend to put professionalism out in the field. How did you realize this was the, the way that you needed to do it, like that the ANSI standard had to be there? Was this something that you learned just as your leadership kind of grew as a chairman and board of the directors member over the years? Uh, did you hear basically from the manufacturing side, like this is how our standards work or where, where do you realize that this is the way to go? Or is, it, or is it the educational leadership within the CD organization that figured it out and kind of led the way? Well, there were a couple of things that came to play here. One is when the strategic plan came out with the three legs of the stool, Mm -hmm. and that our leadership and so forth, there's no way to achieve that unless what you put out into the public domain carries some sort of international weight that we're not fooling around. We're just not kids playing with toys. Mm -hmm. This is a serious profession and it fit well into uh, workforce development and it worked well into standards development. And where this came to me was I was always very not happy with the quality of tests that were given. I wasn't happy with the fact that um, the what you had to do to renew that certification often had nothing to do with the certification. Hmm. So you could have certification X and that industry changes and you start taking courses about A, B and C that doesn't keep you current and it doesn't match what you would get as an electrician or a plumber or something of that nature. Okay. But going much further back, I was involved developing telecommunication standards mm -hmm. for what was then called CCITT, which is now ITU. And that's when the process of de developing standards and the meaning behind the standard once it was developed came very, very clear to me as to its importance and what it did for business. And so that got to the point where the thing that we need to do going forward then is to change our certification to be meaningful, not just to our members, mm -hmm. but the trades that we're working with. Right. Okay. So take us back to that time when you, um, you had a company that you sold. Um, you you worked in in the uh, telecom space. Um, you had a stint there with Holiday Inns Worldwide. I'm curious about that. Um, 
several different stops there before you got into the residential tech um, space, as we know at the Cedia channel. Um, yeah. So, so w- what maybe we could start with childhood um, kind of uh, goals. Were you a techie kid? Um, big into science. What what kind of led you into the tech in- industry? The first part of your tech industry background. I was I was big into science all through junior high and high school. Um, my declared major at the university was physics. Um, and um, one of the things that happened back then, there was no such thing as a course called computer sciences, but your coursework, you had to do programming. Hmm. And the possibility of what you could do with programming stuck with me. Uh, I ended up going working for a short guy with big ears, uh, H. Ross Perot. Oh, wow. And uh, spent several years with EDS. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where I learned the biggest problem with Friday was that there were two working days till Monday. <laughs> um, I worked on projects there for NASA, for, uh, as in the government services side, for the Western Area Power Administration, for um, Saudi Arabian Education Mission. Uh, uh, and for the U.S. Army ARATS project and the Postal Cab Sunset project, all massive projects. Um, but I'm—I viewed myself as an innovator, and I, I wasn't really concerned with what we were trying to do, but why we were trying to do it. Mm. Because why would tell me what the approach was to solve the problem? What would not do that? Okay. And then I moved on to what was then a subsidiary of ITT, uh, ITT, which was at that point a massive conglomerate. And we developed the first commercially available electronic messaging system. Hmm. And we did innovations such as the ability to, uh, we, we sold these systems to PTTs. So the Deutsche Bundespost, Israeli PTT, to British Telecom, uh, Hutchison, Wampo, and so forth. Um, so it was international. And we innovated by allowing you to send and originate or originate and receive telexes on electronic mail. We were experimenting with text to voice. So this is the kind of innovation that I got um, serious about. And uh, a for, for just off. a little frame of reference around what year or time period would that have been? Oh my gosh, this would have been the late 70s, early 80s. Okay, early, early on. And that's yeah, and our clientele were well, the Secret Service, wow. um, Pepsi, Coca Cola, large corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, about that, after doing that for a while, Bell Canada brought their what they call INET service to to the United States. And I was brought on to that organization. And um, I liked what they were doing because one of the things that they did is you could free form a question. Like uh, an example would be, what are the laws in, in Illinois with regard to a radar speeding ticket within 100 feet of a metal sign. 
Okay. And we would then send out that to Westlaw, Lexis, Nexus, and other databases. Okay. And then compose an English language response to everything that we found and deliver that back to the attorney. Wow. Okay. So this was pre-internet time where... Pre-internet. There's no internet. In fact, at the time, um, colleagues of mine were in fact working at Park on the development of the internet mm. and testing it. And I was very close to them. In fact, many of them were on the standards committees with me. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, that was all before all of that. But that was the sort of innovation that I was looking for. Sure. Um, there's sort of a funny story about that. I was invited to go to a major um, computer manufacturer's facility and interview to be in charge of their SQL database development uh, section. And that would have made me the the secretariat of the ANSI um, relational database committee, standards committee. Mm. And so at the end of the interview, they offered me the job and said, is there anything your current employer could do to keep you there? And I said, look, I'm the highest ranked non-Canadian working for a Canadian telephone company. There is no chance that they're going to promote me to vice president. Mm. So I'm back in the office. I'm proofreading my letter of resignation. Okay. My boss walks into the office and I hide this letter under the desk. Uh-huh. He says, I thought I'd just tell you the board just met and they're promoting you to vice president. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going, oh my God. Wow. <laughs> but eventually, um, Bell decided to roll that operation back up into Canada. And I was given the opportunity to visit Ottawa and see how much I'd enjoy living in Canada. Oops. Um, the problem what time is of year. <laughs> it brought me up in February in the middle of a blizzard. Not a good idea. Yeah. Bad planning. Uh-huh. So I elected to stay behind and close down the facilities, um, organize the sell off of things like the office furniture and the massive uh, Northern Telecom um, electronic phone switch and other assets, the computers and so forth. And where was yeah. that office? That office was in uh, Chantilly, Virginia. Okay. So um, right there in the whole government it, sector. Yeah, it was pretty much government sector. And again, our customers were not individuals. Yeah. It was all corporate. Mm -hmm. Our biggest customer, this is scary. Our biggest customer was the American Bar Association. Mm. So if you're to be sued, do you think you could find an unbiased judge anywhere in planet Earth? <laughs> Not a chance. So anyway, um, we were given permission. I and fellow who became a partner and worked with me for years and said, I have an idea to fix the fundamental customer interface problems that hotels and that hotel chains have. And so um, we developed a system for central reservations okay. that was linked real time using two phase commit to the hotel properties. So 
we could measure the value of a real customer. We could keep track of things. The example was Dr. Sugihara checks into a Holiday Inn in Iakuni, Japan. He says, I'm allergic to down. I need to have a foam pillow. He can then, this is all entered in Katana. He flies the next morning to LA, goes to the Holiday Inn and says, hi, I'm Dr. Sugihara, I'd like a room. Mm-hmm. It would come up on the screen just like this, translated into English. I see Dr. Sugihara, you stayed in Iwakuni last night. We'll have a foam pillow set up to your room. And um, we thought it was pretty cool. We tested it at a few hotels. And the next thing that happened was um, uh, La Quinta mm. had us compete to replace their front desk and reservation systems. They told us, said at the end, you really won this, but we can't use you because you're such a small company that if something goes wrong, we couldn't afford to recover from such a big Mm. disaster. And uh, the next one came from Best Western. And we were, we were um, the two finalists and they brought us in for a test where people from various departments would come in and say, we want this change. And they'd want to know how long it'd take and then see it. And instead of taking days using conventional programming as opposed to a relational database, um, we were doing it in hours. Mm. And Holiday Inn got, got word that this was about to happen. And so they flew up to Chantilly, Virginia, where we were officed, and said, we're buying the company. Oh, jeez. Okay. And so um, they didn't want it. They didn't want a competitor really to have that system. They wanted to have it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's where Steve and I got moved to Atlanta. Okay. And with a pocket full of cash after we did our indentured servitude. Right. And there was Cedia having yeah. an expo. And this looks cool, man. It's programming. How tough can it be? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so little did you know, but then um, I want to talk more about that and how you got into the design world that you are in now. Um, but first, I want to take a brief break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you for listening to this episode of Residential Tech Talks. Today's show is brought to you by Yreboot. Yreboot specializes in creating commercial-grade networks that address the demand of advanced control and automation technologies for residential, commercial, and luxury marine environments. Yreboot systems are comprised of the best gear in the industry, including the Paramount Access Point Mount, developed for integrators and interior designers. To learn more, go to yreboot.com and accesspointmount.com. Welcome back. I'm talking to 2020 CDF fellow, Dennis Erskine. Dennis, you were starting to talk about how Atlanta, um, you were in Atlanta and your first CDF and how it just seemed like the easiest thing in the world to get into this industry. So you're, you're able to walk around a exhibit hall and what were your impressions there that first time you ever it was, encountered it was it? pretty it was pretty interesting one of the classes i took there was back when joe kane and joe silver were teaching their calibration mm-hmm. and uh that opened my eyes to wow there's more to this 
um, than what you would think on the surface. And that's what got us to dig in and begin to understand and get aligned with vendors. And that's when I met Larry Pixton for the first time, not face to face. But I tried to become a dealer for triad speakers. And I said, well, are you a CEDIA member? No. How long you've been in the business? Uh, six months. Even though it was really like six hours. Yeah. So we, uh, we joined CEDIA and had a chat with Larry and we became a triad dealer. So, okay. Now, were you initially, um, were you initially a straightforward custom integrator or were you, did you go into theater sort of? For no, we were, we were a custom integrator, you know, sort of the whole home. Mm -hmm. Um, this was before flat panels and, um, we do lighting controls and automation. We were doing Crestron and Lutron at the time. Um, and we had some clients, not a large number in terms of percentage that wanted a home theater, what they called then a home theater. And I was very disappointed in what home theater was. I mean, why are you spending all this money for what is essentially a big TV? Mm -hmm. You don't have any, any better sound. You just have a bigger picture that sometimes isn't as bright as it ought to be. Right. And uh, so I started digging into the physics behind how this works. Things I saw that could be better. Um, and that's when I basically Steve and I went different directions. He stayed in the programming and he's a guy who spoke ones and zeros anyway. And I started moving into, I want to do home theaters, right? I want to do private cinemas. I want to, it's not the brand of the gear. It's not the prettiness of the speakers that counts. It's the experience that people get from the result. Sure. And I felt they were, not getting that. Mm. And so that's when I started doing design only. In fact, I refused to sell equipment. Okay. And um, some of my clients after the design work, they're very happy with what they got, but they said, why won't you sell us the stuff? Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm afraid that if I am a dealer for X, Y, and Z, that if I recommend one of those products, it's because I'm selling the product, not because it's the right product for the room. Okay. And my clients universally came back and said, no, 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 no. We never would have thought that because mm -hmm. we worked through the design and so forth process with you that, um, that wasn't a problem. So that's when I started doing the equipment. And when we started looking at requirements that were just totally overlooked by everybody in the industry, uh, you got, uh, six people in the room. That's 3000 BTUs an hour of cooling that you need. Mm. So how are you going to survive in a room that doesn't have a return? Right. Um, how are you going to get enough air into that room without noisy uh, diffusers on the ceiling? Um, if the softest sound recorded on the soundtrack is 22 dB, how are you going to hear it when the background noise in the quiet house is 33 dB? 
Right. So that's when we got into sound isolation and uh, studying all that stuff, particularly the work that Sean Always and Fred Toole did up in Canada. Okay. Um, and one of the things we discovered very quickly is that no matter how specific the plans are, 99.999% of the home builders or remodelers didn't follow them. Oh, wow. You know, we would do things like say drywall and then build the raised platform. They say, that's nonsense. We don't understand doing that. We're just going to build the raised platform. What they did in the process is they violated the sound isolation protocol. Right. And um, so it got to the point where a different Steve and I got together. He was a very, very good um, uh, remodeler, furniture maker, and so forth, and said, we, we've, got, we've got to build these mm. right. And that's how we got together. And so now we're in the position where we start with the design and specification, then we move on to doing the construction ourselves okay. to make sure it is done right, it's done properly. And in the end, today, these rooms are being built to one millimeter accuracy. Wow. Because we're using CNC machines. And on average, you've seen some of the pictures of the rooms we do. Mm -hmm. On average, we were on site 20 days from studs to turning it over to the customer. That's quick. It's not because we're fast. It's because we do this every single day of the year. Mm. We know what we're doing. We know what's coming next. And we know what the obstacles are. And we know Mrs. Mussey doesn't want us traping in and out of her house for three months. Sure. Are, are you selling product now or are you still yes. partnering with integrator? So you do the whole thing. Yeah, we sell the, we sell the product. Some of it's pro product. We buy a lot of our amplifiers and DSPs from QSC audio. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is, is that somebody says, what speaker should I use in my room? I said, I haven't designed the car yet. I don't know how big the engine has to be. Okay. And so the equipment specification is based upon the technical requirements of the room and the number of people in it and so forth. So that's where we're at. So now I'm sure that you've seen a lot change technically, product-based, um, standards-based, whatever it is throughout the years. But uh, um, I'm imagining something like Dolby Atmos has been probably the biggest change for you, or is there something else that uh, affected the way you- Well, there were, there were two big changes. And, and currently the biggest change that has really enhanced the experience, the biggest two, our Dolby Atmos, DTSX, this whole envelopment thing, that has really brought sound in these rooms to a real high level of experience. The second, of course, is HDR, if in fact you're actually capable of putting it on the screen, which most right. projectors can't do. But the bigger change came, and it's an interesting story how it came about. I was on a home theater cruise with... Uh, um, uh, Don Stewart and Sam Runco, and they were sitting together and I sort of interrupted myself between them and said, this is what the world needs now. I said, Don, can you build a curved masking screen? Mm. I said, sure, we can do that. What do you need it for? I says, because if you use an anamorphic lens, you're going to get a slight barrel and the mm -hmm. curve would take that out. The other thing is projectors aren't too bright. So what happens is that old angle of incidence equals the angle of reflection is putting too much light splay on the walls, not into the seating. Mm -hmm. 
And then I went to Sam and said, Sam, what you need to do is you need in a projector to be able to take a widescreen format and electronically make it tall. So everybody's tall and skinny. And then slide an anamorphic lens in front of that to stretch it back out to give you the real cinematic experience. Right. Sam didn't say he could do that. He just played Sam. He looked me straight in the eye and said, how many can you sell? Oh, God. Yeah. I can hear that. <laughs> so those are, the, those are the, the big things that really changed what was going on. Yeah, that makes sense. That That's a true theater screen then when that happens and uh the the curve so do you uh it, it seems that things you don't necessarily need the anamorphic lens anymore is that all done oh, optically? oh yes you do you do you do okay you do unless you have a um two two three nine to one aspect ratio chip or right 2.37 then you don't need the lens anymore. Right. But if you're stuck with a 16 by nine format chip, then yeah. you then you need that electronic change and you need the anamorphic lens to get that to to fill the full screen. Mm -hmm. And some people say, well, it's cheaper to zoom. Well, wait a minute. If you're zooming, you're still losing a, th a third of your resolution because mm -hmm. that's still that narrow strip. Um, you're losing a third of your light output, and the last thing you need on a bigger picture is less light output. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things wrong with that approach. Um, but I recognize that not everybody can put up 10 grand for an anamorphic lens. So there you go. Mm -hmm. um, so, you, so you make adjustments as necessary, compromises if you have to, but uh, you, you do have a highest the high standard, which is... You, you would prefer to have that anamorphic lens to do it that way. Yeah, I'd prefer to have a projector with a cinemascope aspect ratio chip. Well, okay, but, sure. Yeah, but um, the way I approach clients is much like a doctor would approach a patient, where I suggest this is what we need to do. When the customer comes back with any number of reasons that he'd rather do this. Right. My job at that point in time is to tell him the pros and cons of doing it my way and the pros and cons of doing it his way from a technical perspective and allow them then to make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. So so beyond the technical part of it, how much of the aesthetics do you control or do you work with a designer as well in terms of the the theme, for lack of a better term, you know, the design elements like the 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 color scheme and the materials and that sort of thing in the in the theater it's very rare that that happens um we've got some large projects going on in california and austin texas that are new builds and all of our clients are by referral and in each of these two cases the homeowner has told the architect and the interior designer that that room is none of their business mm. And what we try to do is look at what the designer and architect is trying to do with the rest of the house and at least incorporate some of that into the room. Mm -hmm. um, so there's continuity there. Of course, clients are saying, look, the house is, um, um, is mid-century modern. 
but we want our theater to be 1849 San Francisco Bordello, which is fine, <laughs> but it's, it's what the customer wants and we can deal with that. But do you have that, where, where do you get that part of your skill set? Because that seems like more of a, you, you know, you're from a, more of a science engineering sort of background and it seems like there's, there's a, I don't know, there's an art to some of that, you know, that aesthetic, is that something that you had to develop over time or it comes naturally or is it just computer-based? <laughs> yeah, I guess um, it comes somewhat naturally, but on the other hand, when I was at university, like many people, I had to work. And I ended up working in an advertising agency in the creative department. So some of those skills were picked up there. Okay, um, From the graphic arts perspective. Yeah, I'm, and I'm proud to say I can still use a ruling pen without dripping ink. <laughs> so, so you're not the only one that do, that's a very specific um, sort of I don't know if design build is always the case, but theater designer. There are others out there. Are you are you friendly with those guys, or do you are you guys sworn enemies because <laughs> you compete no. in the same space? And Tony and Gramani and I are our friends have been for a long time. Uh -huh. um, Someone like Sam Cavett's out there too, and yeah, Hawaii. Sam Cavett. Uh, I haven't had a lot of of interaction with Sam except at CDS shows and training classes and so forth like that. Yeah. Um, but I think the difference between those two guys and us is that we're in a position to control the entire process from the start to turning it over to the customer. So. We don't have to rely upon an unknown builder to can do the construction or try to teach an HVAC contractor why it is that the uh, supplies must be high mounted in the front and had to be bar drills. And uh, I'm not interested in cubic feet per minute. I'm interested in um, velocity, hmm. not the amount of air. Um, and so, um, and having, you know, 15 years of running into obstacles, mm -hmm. steel beams, we didn't know were there. Um, we have the experience to overcome unforeseen circumstances. Hmm. And, and you, uh, you were, I mean, you had a, a bit of an inside track in that you're so, so involved with Cedia, but the fact that you're one of your theaters is in the, the new Cedia headquarters, which is just a beautiful facility. And, that, that space is amazing. Um, uh, you must be pretty proud to have have your work represented there for anyone that's able to come in. And of course, right now, not too many with COVID, but uh, yeah. but, but that, that must be an amazing accomplishment. It, it, it was, and in fact, to keep everything legit, um, we had to submit a proposal, just like the other people who are interested. And then when the decisions were being made, I had to excuse myself from the room it was okay. I could go down to the bar then, you know, <laughs> but, uh, so I had no input into the selection process. Uh, I think one of the reasons that we won the award was that we were the only company submitting the bid that was full turnkey where mm -hmm. we did the construction in that room. Mm -hmm. And that just resolved a whole bunch of problems apparently for Cedia. Well, I, I, I spoke off the record to some people that were in that decision-making process. I actually, I'll, I'll just say it was one person, so over over exaggerate too much. But he said that the other proposals were cute, cute 
compared to yours. So, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, that kind of puts it in a nutshell as far as how, how much higher level your, your design was. And that there was really no, no doubt about that being the, the chosen project. So, uh, right. So, well, I wouldn't have had uh, access to that kind of information. No, no, I understood that it was all on the up and up, but, uh, yeah. but that, that's really cool. And it's great that I'm local to that facility and I can go in and, and see it again um, when things are, <laughs> are allowed to happen like that again. Speaking of which, how has, how has COVID-19 changed your work? Um, if, if at all, because of how you do things from a, maybe it really hasn't changed our work. Um, the one thing I am seeing is that, um, we're getting more demand for our product. Okay. And I think that has to do with the fact that people are becoming, uh, quarantined at home and, uh, the 65 inch TV on the wall doesn't cut it for them. Right. Um, and from a family perspective, uh, in fact, we have one client whose second, second residence was at a, re, uh, a mountain resort, ski resort. His primary residence was on the East Coast. And because of all that's going on, he's making the second residence his primary residence and physically moving there full time. And uh, we're putting in uh, a really serious theater for him. Mm -hmm. Nice. So are you, um, have you, had you been traveling much to do uh, projects outside of Colorado before COVID or is it mostly just within the state? It's very rare that we get a project within our state. Oh, really? Everything's out, out of state. So, so are yeah. you still traveling during all this time? Um, well, I don't do as much traveling as what the installation and construction team does. Okay, so you have a I whole team really, that has to go do that. I okay. don't really need to do that. And they aren't traveling by air because what they've got is a truck and a large mm -hmm. trailer that all of their tools and stuff are in. And on the second trip, you know, for example, all the interior moldings we do on our CNC machines. Mm -hmm. And we stain them in our paint booth and then seal them front back and on the edges so we don't have shrinkage and expansion during humidity changes okay um and so all that stuff is put in the trailer and hauled out and then we assemble it on site there's no reason for me to be there particularly because they know i believe that manual labor is a spectator sport <laughs> and uh if i were there they'd want to put me to work <laughs> right right of course and, and, and given your current uh, appearances, uh, the, the grizzled old guy in Colorado, they may, may mistake you for Santa Claus when you're there. So you don't want to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a hippie or something. Or a hippie. Yeah, there you go. Um, well, uh, I, I, I did want to touch on one last thing, which is the, that uh, one of the, the anecdotes about your, your life is that you're a licensed commercial pilot and flight mm -hmm. instructor. So are you still, still doing that? Uh, I haven't done it since I moved to Colorado. Um, okay. Obviously, with a 50-year-old home that I bought, my father at 92 couldn't keep up with. There's a lot of work that I have to do around here. Mm. The infrastructure is really, rather amazing in this house. Mm. It consists of two POTS lines. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 yeah, so you got your work cut out for you. Huh? Well, I'm trying to convince Ken that they need to do a uh, boot camp on retro wiring mm. 
and my house could be what they do it on. And so I figured that'd be pretty cool. I could get paid for somebody to wear my house. There you go. Now you're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, Dennis, on that note, uh, I want to just thank you for taking the time out today to, to chat with us and give you, give us so much background. And again, congratulations on, on the Cedia Fellow Award. Well, well, thank you. And I um, saw the list of the other 30 and going, do I really belong here? <laughs> oh, you do. You've, you, your name has come up a lot over the years with a lot of important changes and improvements on with Cedia. And um, I, I think you're, you're more deserving than I, I was. So there you go. But thank you again. And uh, also thanks to everybody for joining us. Be sure to comment, share, or subscribe to the podcast. And you can check out all the latest residential tech news at restechtoday.com. Until next time, please stay safe, stay inspired, and let us know if you have a great story to tell.